Take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read together verses 16 and 17. I ask you if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is God's holy word for us today. Let's ask Him to bless it. Father, we thank You so much for Your Scriptures. We thank You that You have spoken to us a, a powerful, life-changing, life-giving, infallible Word, and we ask that You would bless the reading of this Word and also now the preaching. And when you, you, do, you be our teacher today, and You write Your truth upon our hearts and stamp it upon our lives as individuals, as families, and as a church. And we'll give You the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, in the first two sermons of this series on biblical reformed worship, we have been laying the biblical and theological foundation of worship. These sermons form the theoretical basis for reformed worship. And as we continue going forward in the series, we're going to move from the more theoretical to the more concrete as we discover the specific things that God expects of us in worship. Last week, we established from Scripture what the Reformed tradition calls the regulative principle. The principle that God gets to tell us how He wants us to worship Him. And not just He gets to tell us, but He actually has done so. He's actually told us and where is he told us? In the Holy Scriptures. And that means all worship must be according to Scripture. This week, I want to dive deeper into the regulative principles foundations and explain from Scripture the nature of the principle and why we ought to apply the principle when crafting our worship services in our passage this morning, in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, Paul exhorts the church to practice God-centered, Christ-focused, Bible-saturated worship. And as we dig into Paul's teaching, we will see the regulative principle and its application. We will see how it arises from Scripture itself in contrast to alternative man-centered approaches. So let's, uh, let's begin then with this first uh, contrast that we see uh, between the worship that Scripture tells us to engage in and the alternative. So this is point one. One of the most fundamental sins at the bottom of the fallen human heart is pride. 
We have pride in our intelligence. We have pride in our looks. We have pride in our status. We have pride in our wealth, our possessions, our own goodness, our own abilities to control and achieve. How often this pride infects even our relationship with God. Fundamentally, deep down, we convince ourselves that we know better, that we are right, and that somehow God is wrong. This pride shows up in our worship when we presume to know what God wants without consulting His Word. We're like some self-important man, too full of himself, who takes it upon himself to order dinner for his date without bothering to ask what she likes first. Chances are, she will not appreciate the gesture. She will not enjoy the thought, your thoughtless section. And probably, she will not answer the phone when you call for a second date. I mean, you and I, no matter which, no matter who of us goes on that kind of date, we're not going to appreciate it. We're not going to like a date like that. But that's what so many people in churches treat God to every weekend. And we keep expecting Him to show up for the next date, the next weekend. Last week I mentioned Colossians 2.23 as one of the texts that the Westminster Confession of Faith cites as proof of the regulative principle. Colossians 2, 20-23 condemns and forbids our human pride in worship, calling it will worship. Will worship, or as the ESV says, self-made religion in verse 23. And this forms a clear contrast with what Paul exhorts the church to do in our passage in chapter 3, verse 16. So let's look at what this contrast is. Will worship versus word worship. Let's talk about will worship in a little more detail first. Will worship in this context here in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, that passage is specifically talking about general religious practices. It's not just specifically about worship. It's about all sorts of religious regulations. But will worship is mentioned, so worship is included. It's general enough that it includes other things, but it also includes worship. It applies to our worship as well. Notice what it says. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. It says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And the ESV has a dash, because what comes next is parenthetical material. And that dash ends in verse 22, where it says, according to human precepts and teachings. So take out the parenthesis and just look at what he says, the, the, uh, the, the full sentence without the parenthesis. Why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? Regulations according to human precepts and teachings. Now, the issue is not regulations. Right? We're talking about the regulative principle. So regulation is expected. In fact, regulations are good and they're necessary. They're, even, they're not even really avoidable. Every church is going to have some kind of concept, principle, order that they follow. Even the most wild and 
freewheeling worship service you've ever been to, I'll bet they do a couple things in the same order every week. So there's, there's some kind of idea, principle, something that regulates that worship in some way. Every worship service has some kind of regulation, no matter what tradition, denomination, or style we're talking about. Regulations are unavoidable. They're good. They're necessary. That's not the question. The issue here in chapter 2 is, what's the origin of the regulation? Where does it come from? Is it self-made religion? Is it self-imposed worship, will worship? Is it worship that's according to man's will, not God's will? That's what we're talking about. Regulations according to human precepts and teachings. Whose regulations should we follow is the fundamental question. Notice it also says this in verse uh, 23. It says, talking about these human precepts and teachings, it says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but check this out, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We have an appearance of wisdom in our bright ideas about how God probably wants to be worshipped. That guy who orders for his date without asking her what she likes has some kind of idea. Oh, I'll bet she'll like this. Oh, I'll bet she'll enjoy this. I like this. I'm sure she will too. And whether she does or doesn't isn't the point. How about you let her order? <laughs> How about you let her decide what she wants in front of her? Instead of just taking whatever you think she might happen to like. Right? So that's the issue here. It has an appearance of wisdom. It makes sense to us. Oh, why wouldn't God be okay with it? Well, why? well this makes sense. This sounds good. It has an appearance of wisdom. But it has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. We convince ourselves that our worship is wise and good and effective and pleasing to God. Look how rigorous it is or look how exciting it is. But it's valueless and worthless, God says, when it comes to accomplishing in us what worship is intended by God to accomplish. And that is stopping the indulgence of our flesh. Worship is supposed to make you grow. It's not just group quiet time where we all do our devotionals together and some guy leads it and we do a few songs. Big group quiet time with each other. This is a means of grace. This is something where you come to worship God and then who do you think gets the service part of a worship service? We're not meeting God's needs. We're not serving Him. Because Acts says, God is not a man that he needs to be served with human hands. He gives to us life and breath and everything. And in him we live and move and have our being. What are we going to give to God that he didn't first give us anyways? So we come here to worship him and then he serves our needy, empty, frail, broken souls with his grace and promises. He gets the worship, we get the service, not in the sense that he's our cosmic butler and you ring the bell and tell him what you want, but that he gives us what he knows we need. We worship him. He serves us with his mercy, his power, his grace, his life. Worship is supposed to make you grow, Christian. You're here 
engaging in a means of grace. Worship is for your sanctification. Worship is for your edification. It's supposed to make you less likely to indulge your flesh this coming week. It's a weekly increase in your holiness. That's what you're supposed to be here for. Worship is a means of grace that God uses to change you more and more, little by little, week after week, over the long haul of a whole Christian life to be more like Christ. But will worship disrupts this whole process. If we have shallow worship, we will walk away from church with a shallow walk with the Lord in the upcoming week. And you eat a steady diet of that your whole Christian life, and we will sputter and stumble and trip our way into heaven if we make it. That's will worship. It has no value in checking the indulgence of our own flesh. It doesn't help us grow. It doesn't make us more holy. Even if it feels exciting and it has an appearance of wisdom. What about word worship? This will worship is in contrast to the word worship that Paul talks about in chapter 3 in our passage. Notice what it says in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's focus on that part. This word, when it says word of Christ, is the message about Christ. It's the gospel word. It's the word preached by the apostles. And that preaching, that message, is recorded for us in the New Testament by divine inspiration. Indeed, Christ says that all Scripture testifies to Him. And so worship must be Christ-focused. Which means worship must be grounded and guided and governed by the word. If our, if our worship is going to be Christ-focused, it better be guided, grounded, governed by the Word of Christ. That Word, Paul says, must dwell in us richly. It must dwell in us. The Word needs to take up residence in our congregation. It ought to be at home with us. It lives with us. It abides in our Hearts, in our lives, in our church. It has to dwell. It has to live right where we are. It shouldn't be a visitor that, oh, this Sunday we had a little more word. <laughs> nice. What a, what a surprise. What a rare occasion. A little extra Bible in church this week. Nice. No. It ought to be the centerpiece. The word, let the word of Christ dwell. And then it says, dwell in you. Now, often because, this is just the way we're programmed, we read that as me. Let the word of Christ dwell in me. Individually, by myself. <laughs> and yes, the word of Christ should dwell in your personal, individual heart. Yes, absolutely. Psalm 119. How does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Yep, but got to have the word in your own heart. That's right. But that's not what this says. The word for you is plural. And it doesn't mean in each of you. It means among you. Let the word of Christ dwell in your midst. Let it dwell and take up residence in your presence, in your company. It needs to dwell among us and in our midst and within our body. 
in our church body. And it must dwell, Paul says, richly, plenteously. Our body, our church should be overflowing with the Word. We should be saturated with Scripture. If it's dwelling plentifully, richly, profusely, we ought to be just soaked in Scripture. Our worship ought to be brimming with Bible. Then it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In all wisdom. Now that should sound like what we just read in chapter 2. These human precepts have an appearance of wisdom, but you, let the word of Christ dwell in you with all wisdom. Real wisdom. God's kind of wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the word of Christ. Our regulations, our teachings and admonitions from, from chapter 2, they flow from the word of Christ. They are not human precepts. They are not human teachings of chapter 2, verse 22, which flow from will worship. They flow from the word, not from my own will. And neither do these regulations have the mere appearance of wisdom. These regulations of the word have all wisdom. Therefore, we are to exercise that wisdom, all that wisdom of Scripture in our worship as we apply the, these divine regulations. Will worship, clearly contrasted with word worship. The regulative principle comes directly out of this contrast between will worship and word worship. All worship must be derived from the Word of Christ and directed by the wisdom of the Scriptures. That's number one. This contrast between will worship and word worship highlights now a second contrast. Point number two. Will worship is man-centered. Word worship is God-centered. Look at chapter 2, verse 22 again. According to human precepts and teachings. According to human precepts and teachings will worship. That's man-made worship. Human precepts, man-made worship. 2.23, self-imposed worship. Self-made religion. Man-centered, self-imposed, make it up as we go, use our own wisdom. That's the kind of worship we're going to have. Worship that is fundamentally about me. Worship that's fundamentally about who I am. Worship that's fundamentally about what I like. Worship that's Fundamentally, about what I can do for God. See, we're giving God both the worship and the service this morning, according to will worship. We're serving Him. We're doing Him a favor. Look at this beautiful worship we cooked up, God. Oh, you don't like that? Oh, I, huh. I should have asked. But we don't ask. And that's what pride does. That's what pride does. Let me tell you a little, an example of this, how this reality came bursting home for me in college at Liberty University. Moment of silence. At Liberty University. Sorry, Liberty. It's not, it's not the whole school's fault. But there we are in like, in, in a, uh, what do they call it? Campus church. Campus church. So we're there at campus church. It's a night service. We're in the, we're in the, um, the uh, basketball arena there. And the Vine Center. We're in the Vine Center, the basketball arena. And so 
I mean, the lights are turned down, the stage is lit up, the band's doing their thing. And they had this song that everybody just loved. It's called History Maker. I'm going to be a history maker in this land. It's all about what I'm going to do for God. That's what it is. History Maker. It's a, it's a, it's a bad song. Okay. And, it, and I didn't even make it sound worse. I can't sing, and I did not even make it sound worse. It's not a good song. Anyway, so we're singing this in worship, right? And, and I'm looking around me, and Rick, people's hands are up. They're doing this. Their eyes are closed. And they're, it's like they're supposed to be singing to God, but they're like, I'm going to be, I'm going to do this. <laughs> It's all about us, Lord. Right? And it's this whole, and I just said, who are we singing to? It's like we're talking to ourselves about all the stuff, all how good we are at everything. And, and it just, and I was singing it too, but then I just stopped and I thought, this is a weird song for a worship service. And then I look at the people around me and they're just, they're just drinking it in. I'm like, well, yeah, I love me too. This, the, <laughs> this just, this indulges my flesh. This, sound, this feels good. This indeed has the appearance of wisdom. You see, we, we give ourselves permission to make worship about everything else except pleasing God. And once we say, once we're not tethered to the Word and it's will worship, and you might have some really like pious, holy, like faithful men and women who have a, a good holy will, who want to have like a good reverent worship service, and you might, you might end up with that. But there's no guarantee you're going to get that. I mean, have y'all been to some just crazy worship services? I've, I've seen some stuff. I've seen some crazy stuff. I've seen churches who like have a huge beach ball with, that looks like the globe, and they're batting it around the congregation to celebrate Earth Day in church. Uh, and it's like, how, how did we get here? Who told them that this was a good idea? Well, no one had to tell them, because it's will worship. It's what we think We'll give ourselves permission to do about anything in worship. And we will end up relying on the arm of the flesh. We will not check the indulgence of the flesh. We'll use the flesh in worship and think it's the right thing to do. Let me give some examples. Those of you wearing flip-flops, watch your toes. I might start stepping on them. Let me give you some examples. We make worship about us. Here are some ways we do that. We make worship about evangelism. And when we do that, everything becomes about what is the unbeliever like? What will get the unbeliever in the door? What will keep the unbeliever entertained long enough to become a member and maybe start giving? You know, we don't have a band. Oh, this, this unbeliever who's been visiting, he plays guitar. Do you want, this will be a good evangelism tool to put him in the worship band. And then while we're practicing, we can give him the gospel. But meanwhile, while he's an unbeliever, he'll lead the worship. I've seen that happen. We turn into a seeker-sensitive church where all of our worship is no longer about God. It's no longer about edifying the saints. Now it's about drawing in the unbeliever. So our worship has to be palatable for someone who is not born again. We turn to theatrics. We'll turn to shallowness and silliness to get people in the door. That's one. That's one example. Second, we make worship about church growth. 
We'll make it about church growth. Our services are all geared towards getting people's butts in seats. Having a big full sanctuary. And then if that's all we want to do, we'll start using tricks and gags and gimmicks and devices. We'll, we'll do all sorts of silliness. We'll have games and we'll have dress up and we'll have a mascot and we'll, do, we'll decorate the platform to look like the beach and we'll have a, you know, God's my bro sort of sermon series. And we'll just, and, and, and it is, you laugh, but I'm talking about, I'm, I'm not naming names, but I'm thinking of stuff I've seen with these two unfortunate eyes that I can't unsee. We'll just, we'll put people at the road with Mickey Mouse hands to wave people in. And we'll, it just turns into a show, a theater. We'll use tricks, gags, and gimmicks. Because all we want to do is get a crowd. Get a crowd. Get people in the door. If we just get people in the door. And then later, later we'll talk about the gospel. Later we'll talk about growth. But we just have to do the stuff that people like and get them in the door. Another, number three, we make worship about emotion. We make it about emotion. If I don't have some sort of bursting experience every Sunday, the Holy Spirit just wasn't there. Well, pastor didn't have enough faith, or the praise band was off, or boy, those songs were terrible, and uh, yeah, the message just didn't speak to me, and, and uh, yeah, I didn't feel anything. So, bad worship service. God wasn't pleased, Holy Spirit wasn't present, nothing happened here today. What a waste of time. And Why? Because you didn't feel anything. You didn't have an emotional experience. You didn't get lifted up and float around the room like you have before. Because it wasn't camp meeting or it wasn't a revival service. And you didn't feel like raising your hands this, this week. Well, then I guess God just wasn't in it. Well, okay, well, if that's what we think, then we've got to make sure God's in it. Which means we turn to entertainment. And we turn to performance. And we make it into a show. Because we've got to do something to cook up the feelings. Got to get people stirred up. Or otherwise, they're just going to be bummed out. And they're going to think, what a, what a lame church. They don't feel anything there. Entertainment, performance, shallowness rules the day. Because we think emotion is the index for how present God was that day. Fourth, we make it about experience. This is, goes right along with emotion. We make it about experience. If I don't have some sort of charismatic or ecstatic outburst in church, if I don't have some sort of religious experience. Now, we want our hearts to be stirred. We want to feel something powerful in the presence of God. Of course we do. No one's saying that we shouldn't feel anything, right? I know we're Presbyterians, but... No one's saying that we're supposed to be little statues, you know, Lot's wife, just a pillar of stone just propped up in my pew that I've been in for 50 years. That's not what we're supposed to be, right? No one's saying we've got to be lifeless rocks lined up in our same pew every Sunday. No one's, no one's saying that. But the problem is, if we make it all about having some sort of emotion or some sort of experience, we'll, we'll give ourselves permission to do all sorts of things in worship that we have no business doing. Another example, we make it about self-help. Self-help. Now, all of a sudden, if, it's, if we're all just supposed to like work out our neurotic tendencies and just feel good, if we're always just supposed to feel good and come away with just this light, chipper attitude after church, 
Just man, I feel so encouraged, and nobody mentions sin. Thank goodness, because I got a lot, and I don't want to, and I don't want to be reminded of that. But the pastor never does, so I love this church. I feel so good here. <laughs> we got that feel-good atmosphere. We got that, got that nice music playing in worship. We're comfortable. Everybody gets a water bottle. Everybody. Everybody gets a prize, and every, it's just it's no challenge. It's easy. Man, it's easy, church. Keeps me smiling, keeps me comfy. Love that church. Because I feel like I get, I get therapeutic attention on Sunday. Self-help about feeling good. Another example. This is the other end of the spectrum. This, these folks I've been talking about are mainly the sort of modern American evangelical sorts of uh, big box churches. On the other end of the spectrum, we can make it all about symbol and ritual. And this is high church stuff. This is where we get into that old, old traditional, old style high church with vestments and gloves and, and all the, everything uh, just so proper. We have incense and we have, and we have, and we pray 18 three sentence prayers all across the you know, a twelve minute homily and we just and we have we have incense, we have a procession, we up and down and back and forth with this holy book and that and we and you can get into ritualism. You can get into traditionalism. You can think worship's all about the ostentation. It's all about the show. It's all about the presentation, doing this this old traditional formal stuff. Now again, I'm not saying you can't have rituals, you can't be formal. I'm, I'm, it's not a commentary on whether or not that, all that stuff is right or wrong. It's a commentary on, is that the focus? So that if we don't worship that way, it's not real worship. And it doesn't have to be a traditional Anglican or Roman Catholic service. It can be a very traditional set Presbyterian service. Where, well, this is just what we do. We've always done it, and this is how we're going to keep doing it. If it was good enough for great-great-grandma, it's good enough for us. Grandma would be spinning in her grave if she saw us change this. Well, who are we trying to please now? Grandma can't see us. She's got better things, better worship <laughs> that she's engaged in right now. And here we are. One more example here. We could just simply make worship all about personal convenience and taste. Personal convenience and taste. I like it short. I like it sweet. I like, get to the point. I like three songs and a poem. I like... <laughs> all right? And it's like, that's fine. But if that's what it has to be, or I'm leaving this church, that's not real worship. If it's all about our own convenience and our personal taste and what we grew up with, well, I like guitars. Well, I don't like PowerPoint screens. Well, I enjoy the drums. Well, I think flutes are pretty. And we ought to have this. And why don't we do that? And, you know, plates instead of bags for the offering. How about a box? Well, what do I like? What do I find convenient? What tastes good to me? That's what we're going to order. That's what the order of service will be. What's tasty? What's convenient? What's familiar? What's comfortable to me? Now, we can, all those examples, you can find good things in all of them in spite of the negatives that I've highlighted. You can find good things in all of them. But when we make worship all about us, we give ourselves permission to turn it into some of the most ludicrous things you can imagine. None of that is God-centered worship. 
None of it is. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it has no power. And God is not pleased. That kind of worship is more about humoring the goats than feeding the sheep. And you've got Christ's battered, ignored little remnant of sheep over in the corner in the midst of all the circus, in the midst of all the theater. And they're like, we just want someone who will lead us in worship, who will teach us the Bible, who will have us sing God-glorifying songs, and will just do things the way God said to do, instead of trying to convince these goats to become sheep. What does word worship do to correct this? It makes us radically Jesus-focused, and it makes us God-centered instead of man-centered. Paul says in our text in 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. He, Jesus is Lord, not just of my life, not just of my church, is he Lord of worship? Does he get to be Lord on Sunday morning in terms of what we get to do in church? Do everything in his name. Do everything such that he would sign his name to what we're doing. It's got to be based on the word of Christ. Everything should be in his name if he's Lord of worship. It also says at the end of 3.17, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Through Christ, everything we do is directed towards God the Father. It's Jesus-focused and it's God-centered because it's based on the Word of Christ. Jesus-focused, God-centered, everything in the name of Jesus and through Him to the Father. It's all directed at Him. Or as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, which is a close parallel to 3.17, it says, So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. It all needs to be to His glory. It all needs to be focused on Him, for Him, based on what He says. And it says to do everything like this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. Everything, in word or deed, it's all to Him. It's all for Him. There's no room for me to make it up as I go for will worship, for self-imposed religion, for man-centeredness. There's no room for that. There's no time for that. It's all for Christ and through Christ to God. And now, that brings us to our last point today. Once we have committed ourselves to the regulative principle, to fully God-centered, Jesus-focused, Bible-saturated worship according to the divine regulations of Scripture, it's time to discover what those divine regulations are exactly. How detailed are they? How specific and exact does Scripture fix our worship? This is the question of fixed worship versus free worship. Does the Bible fix everything we do in worship expressly and explicitly so that it leaves no room for questions? All you do is crack it open, read the verse, do it in the service. And there's nothing else to think about. Or does the Bible 
leave some things more free to allow for some flexibility and some variety among different churches in different times, different places, and different cultures. Our passage seems to point in the direction of some measure of freedom, that not everything is explicitly and expressly fixed, but some things are left more open. Paul said, and I think the reason our text just sort of tends in that direction is because Paul says to a church he's never been to in person. Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. He heard about it from a friend who said, they got some problems over there, will you write a letter? And he writes a letter and sends it. But he hasn't visited this church, he hasn't been in the building, he hasn't seen the people face to face. It's not his church, technically. He didn't plant it. So Paul says to a church he's never been to, in verse 17, whatever you do. I don't think Paul knows exactly what Sunday morning looks like in Colossae. Whatever you do, make sure... Whether, whatever you say and whatever deed you do, make sure that it's in the name of the Lord and through it you're giving thanks to God. Make sure it's God-centered. But whatever it is you're doing, make sure it meets these criteria. It's got to be word-based and God-centered and Jesus-focused. I don't think Paul knows exactly what they do. Whatever you do, do it in this way to God's glory. Now, this seems to suggest to me that whatever the Colossians do, it might be different in some ways than what the Philippians do, or the Corinthians do, or the Romans. There could be some differences. And so, that means applying the regulative principle isn't as straightforward as just open up the verse, it tells me exactly what to do in every detail, no questions left, unanswered, and I just do that in church. So, so I don't have to think, I just have to be able to read. It's actually a bit more complicated than that, as most things are. Applying this principle is a little bit complex, and it requires some sophistication. It will require what 3.16 says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Wisdom. The church has to work out for itself some of the questions that the regulative principle leaves open-ended. There is fixed worship, but there's also some freedom in worship as well. And it will require the body of Christ having the word of Christ dwelling in us plenteously, richly, and profusely saturating everything we do, being absolutely radically Jesus-focused and God-centered, and committed to worshiping God according to His Word in no other way. And then, when it comes time to put the service together and put everything in place, it will require exercising that all-wisdom that Scripture calls us to do. And so, applying this principle and figuring out some of the complexities, that's the next step we have to take in our study together. And that step is what we'll do next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have indeed given us your scriptures, that you haven't left us in the dark to guess at how you want to be worshipped. You've given us some incredibly clear direction and instruction 
And I thank you that you have given that word to us. And I thank you that we have an opportunity to open it up and look and see what you want from us. Lord, help us to know that we have no confidence that we're pleasing you apart from your word. Without a clear word from you, we don't know for sure if it's what you want. So help us all to open up your word together and to be committed to having God-centered, Jesus-focused, Bible-saturated worship. Oh, may this church, the Forks, be the place where there is absolutely no doubt that the word of Christ dwells in our midst overflowingly, plenteously, and richly. Make us a people that are so passionate for Scripture and so committed to basing our lives and our church and everything we do and say upon your word so that we can give you ultimate glory. Help us to be that kind of church. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.